Hi, and welcome to the West Visalia Audio Podcast. Each message is designed to help you grow and inspire you to take action. Please take a moment to hit the subscribe button, and don't be shy to drop us a message if you have a question. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Alrighty, so remind me what we've been talking about in the book of Genesis. What? Let me rephrase that. What are our guidelines to Bible study? That's where I wanted to start. Guidelines to Bible study, what are they? Okay, follow the Bible. Follow the Bible. And um, I want to kind of add one to our list. So this was our list that we put together. Uh, approach it with humility. Um, the Bible is written for us, but not necessarily to us. That text cannot mean what it never meant. Um, but there is something with community study. Um, what have you benefited from in studying the Bible with other people? Can you think of anything? Different viewpoints and input, exactly. And that's what there was someone uh, this week, I don't want to embarrass the individual, but if you ask me about it later, I'll tell you, um, who had an observation about when Adam named Eve. And Adam, um, as we've discussed, the, the concept of naming is showing authority over. And where in the text did Adam name Eve? At the end of chapter 3, right? And so in that curse, after they, they, they fell from sin, um, Eve was told, the woman was told that you would, uh, your husband would rule over you. And so it was at that point that the man had authority over the woman. And we see after man was given the authority of the woman, and that is when the point in which he gave someone or gave her a name. And so we see how it's all tied together there. And that's, that's one of the benefits of community study that we, we see things differently when we discuss it as a group. And I'm so thankful for Donna, uh, for sharing that, that insight. I told her I wasn't going to embarrass her. Uh, but if you would, as we begin our time in Genesis, um, turn with me to Psalm number 50, uh, the 50th Psalm. This is a Psalm of Asaph, Psalm 50. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes, he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. I see a thief, and you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this, then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart, and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. So why do you think I chose that psalm 
this morning? Why do you think I chose to read that psalm this morning? Rebuking them because of why. And when they were acting, presenting what before God? Before they were presenting their sacrifice. And so that kind of segues into a, or the story that we've been talking about. And what is that story that revolves around sacrifice? Cain and Abel. So remind me, who were Cain and Abel? Okay, so they were the, the first two sons of Adam and Eve. And who was the oldest? Cain. And what was his profession? What did he do for a living? Or what did he do that the Bible tells us? He was a farmer. He was a worker of the ground. And his brother was Abel. And what was Abel's profession? Or, or, or what did he do? He, he was a keeper of the flocks. And so these two brothers presented a sacrifice to God. And were they both received? No. We, we see that the Lord looked upon uh, Abel's sacrifice with regard but for Cain's, he did not. So why did Cain sacrifice, why was Cain's sacrifice not received by God? It doesn't say. But we, we work through in connecting some dots. We try to connect some dots. And some of those dots um, are within the text, and others, there's some other texts associated with it. Cain and Abel are, are, very, are talked about very little. Um, but we do know that the Hebrew author, um, like Wayne pointed out last week, does discuss Abel. And there was, there was something behind their sacrifices that allowed one to be received with regard and one not to be. Uh, but we see, I, I think we need to focus on today, the reaction of the brothers, the two reactions. Specifically Cain, because that's the reaction that we see here. So when we see that Cain, in, in chapter 4 of Genesis Verse, uh, verse 4, And Abel also brought, forth, or brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Why did Cain react that way when his sacrifice was not accepted? Jealousy. Why do you say jealousy? Yeah. And so, and Bruce brings up this concept of jealousy, and we're going to see later in the story, there's some other hints that, that kind of, Intuitively, we, we read that with the story because we see that his brother, his younger brother's sacrifice was accepted. His sacrifice was not. And so then this is, this is a, a, what I believe is a historical account of two brothers, but what they went through is something that we all go through. And so the question that I want to ask you today is when you see a brother do well or succeed, how do you respond? Do you respond like Cain, or do you respond and say that, you know what, that should be me. I, I deserve that. That, that. that should be me in that spot. You know, yeah, so, okay, yeah, so, great. They, they got these wonderful accolades, but how, how, did they, how did the people who chose those accolades give it to this guy? I mean, come on. Had they known everything that I've done, surely I would have gotten the accolades, right? We, we can respond that way, or we can also respond conversely to say, you know what, he does deserve the recognition. That person does deserve what they got. We, we can react differently, and, and I think that our reaction when someone else does good tells a lot, a, bit, or a lot about ourselves. A lot about ourselves. And we see Cain here reacted angrily. And we don't know if he was angry with himself or if he was angry with Abel. And so let's read for, furthermore in the story and see if we can uh, delineate any more what happened. 
Verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? And so this is interesting. God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, right? But here we see, uh, and when God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, he clothed them with animal skins, and it showed that God still protected them. Now Cain is out of the garden. He, he offered a sacrifice to God, and God is communicating with him. Why is God still communicating with Cain? Okay, so Marty brings up Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, that in long ago and many times in various ways God spoke to our fathers, uh, but now he speaks to us through his son. And, and so God spoke, he had a relationship with Cain. He spoke with Cain. Even though uh, we're going to see here even further that Cain still messes up, God still has a relationship with him. Why did God create this world for man? Why did God create man to have a relationship with? And then because of man's inability to keep God's command, that relationship was, there was distance put in that relationship. But we still see that God communicates to his people. He still wants that relationship. God is concerned about the way Cain reacted here. Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? Verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So we get a little, another little hint as to why Cain's sacrifice was not accepted. There was something with, with his ability to do well, whether it was his heart or his mind or, or something with his sacrifice. God says here that you can still do well. You can still be accepted. Your sacrifice can still be accepted. He says in verse 7 that if you do well, but if you do not do well, what happens? Sin is crouching at the door. So this is the first time in the entire Bible that we see that term sin. And how is it described? Crouching. Why is the word crouching used? What do you think of when you hear crouching? Sneaking up on you, right? Uh, I think of a cat, or whether it's a big cat or a small cat. How does a cat approach a mouse? It slowly crawls up, and then what does it do right at the last minute? Boom, it pounces. And so while you're thinking, you can't, understand it. You can't know what it's thinking. That's why I don't like cats. You can't understand what cats are thinking. Um, sorry if anyone is a cat fan out there. Um, but it looks contained. It looks somewhat harmless. And then all of a sudden, boom, it gets you. And you don't even realize what happened. And God is using that description here to discuss sin. So he's saying that if you do well, it will be accepted. But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. But what else does he say about our Cain's relationship with sin? Its desire is contrary to you. Where have we seen this before? After the fall, when God is talking to the man and the woman, what does he say to the woman in relationship to her husband? Chapter 3, verse 16. I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. What does God tell Cain here? Sin's desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Does that sound familiar? Should that sound familiar? What happened when the man did not rule over uh, the woman? And when I say the word rule, it's just to, to have authority over, to, to, to do what was needed to be done. What happened when man did not rule over the woman? Sin crept in. What happens if Cain does not rule over sin? We, we don't see the negative here, but we can connect those dots. It's not going to be good. It's not going to be good. But what does this show? 
concerning Cain's ability to deal with sin. He has the power to overcome it. He has the power to rule over sin. Do we have that power today? Yes. Do we use that power today? Sometimes we do. Sometimes we don't do very well. If we do well, we'll be accepted. If we do not do well, sin is crouching at the, at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. We have the ability to control ourselves, but we do not use it very often. So we saw God's communication with Cain. Now let's go through, and we'll read a, a little bit larger section here um, with uh, Cain's interaction with his brother. Verse 8 of chapter 4. Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, and Abel killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. What do we see here? We see Cain's interaction with his brother Abel. And then what happened? They went into the field, and Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. So Cain went and spoke to, after God talked to Cain, he went and spoke to his brother Abel. And now the question that I have in my mind is how long, how much time went from that first sentence in chapter 8 to when he killed him? How much time was it? Cain went and talked to his brother Abel, and then we see they went to the field. So how much time was it? Was it immediate? Did he fester over this? Um, was it more of a, a crime of passion? Does that make sense? Uh, I, I don't know. But I think that that's some of that vagueness that's here. Cain was told by God that sin is crouching at the door. You have the ability to rule over it. And what's the next thing we see? He murders his brother. And then this is where I think we, will, again, we'll see callbacks to a story we've already read. What did God ask Cain after he murdered, murdered Abel? Where is your brother? And then what did he ask? What's the next question? What have you done? So, after Adam and Eve took of the fruit, what did God ask them? Where are you? What else did God ask after that? What have you done? And so in both instances, when man uh, committed a sin in the case of Cain and Abel, and when man went against God's command, God responded, where are you and what have you done? Should we be drawing connections there? I think so. I think so. How did Abel, or how did Cain, excuse me, respond to God's question on where are you? Where, or where, excuse me, is your brother? I don't know. Yeah, and so his reaction, this is where, again, we're, we're trying to, to put ourselves in the story, in which I think just shows the beauty of how the story is written. Was this a snide response? Was this a, 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 a shifting of responsibility? Or how did Cain respond? And that's what I, I kind of think is kind of a snide response, but I may be wrong in that. Regardless, Cain knew that there was something wrong. Uh, do, we, do we have a command in the Bible yet as to you shouldn't kill each other? No. But what does Cain's response show intuitively? What did Cain know? The fact that he 
lies here showed that to some extent he knew that he shouldn't have killed his brother. Because if he was completely innocent of this, he would say, well, I hit him in the head with a rock, uh, and now he's not here anymore. Uh, because we don't see an account of, of man killing other men before this. Uh, but we, we, we see Cain shifting the responsibility. Who else shifted responsibility for their actions? Eve. All right, do you see the parallels with this story? And as a result, God comes in, and he doesn't get him a chance to answer the question, what have you done? And if we think back to the Adam and Eve story, it says, what have you done? Um, who told you you were naked? So God takes over the, the conversation there, and he does the same thing here. The voice of your brother's blood is crying from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground. Who else was cursed? Or who else, when Adam sinned and God cursed the man, he didn't curse the man, he cursed the ground. And now what is he doing? He's adding on to that curse that uh, cursed are you from the ground because it has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood. When you work the ground, because that's remember what Adam was cursed with was to work the ground to get his food. Now Cain's curse is that when you work the ground, it's not going to deliver its strength up to you. How does Cain react to this? Yeah, Verse 13, my punishment is greater than I can bear. What is this punishment? What was Cain's punishment? He has to sweat, to wander like a drifter. And that's why I want to look at those words. Um, the, the ESV says that God tells Cain that he will be a fugitive and a wanderer. Cain comes back and says that, wait, 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 wait. My punishment's more than I can bear. Verse 14, behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the face of the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. What, what action do we see God, when, when God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, we see that he drove them out of the garden. Cain here says, what did God do? He drove him away from his presence. So we've already seen a lot of parallels with all this. But when we see, I don't know if you can see that very well. Um, but when we see a wanderer and a fugitive, what do we think? What comes to mind? Criminal. A guy wearing the jumpsuit, uh, the orange jumpsuit, uh, and broke out of prison, and now he's running around. Uh, is that the kind of the same thing that, that came to your mind when you read this story or when you hear that word fugitive? You're a fugitive and a wanderer. Uh, and that's what I, I have a, a wonderful appreciation for the people who translated uh, Scripture for us. Because uh, I, I can't imagine the conversations that they had in trying to encapsulate some of these words, some of these motifs. But that term fugitive... Um, it is uh, the definition here is to quiver, to wave, to waver, to tremble, to totter. Um, and so you can see down here are the different ways the NASB has translated it. Uh, excuse me, this is the wanderer. Um, it's to, to, to uh, quiver, to wave, uh, to kind of tremble. And, and so Cain's response is that my punishment is too much to bear, and I'm, I'm going to be trembling all the time. That term fugitive. Um, is to move to and fro, to wander, to, to flutter, to show grief. So Cain is saying that my punishment is too much to bear. I, I'm going to be trembling. I'm going to be showing grief. I'm going to be wandering around from place to place to place. Will Cain have peace? Why won't Cain have peace? Okay, so we have that aspect. He's afraid that someone's going to find him and kill him. But what else is, is preventing Cain from getting peace? Rejection. When Cain rose up and determined what was good for himself and killed his brother, he was driven out of the face of God. 
The, that, that term, the presence of God, is literally face to face. He was driven away from the presence of God. When man rises up and determines what is good for himself, there are consequences. We've seen twice now that that consequence is being driven from the presence of God. Does that make sense? So today, when we rise up and determine what is good for ourselves, what is the consequence? We're driven from the presence of God. When we succumb to that sin that is crouching at the door, what happens to us? We are driven from the presence of God. And that just shows the beauty of something else that happened that brought us back into God's presence. And what was that? Jesus. Because of Jesus' death, we're now able to re-enter with confidence the presence of God, which the, the Genesis author doesn't discuss here, but I just think it's so awesome and so humbling when you think uh, on the way that man reacts to sin uh, and it encompasses what Jesus has done for us. Thoughts on this? We, we see what Marty brings up um, throughout the Old Testament, that there's continual rebellion. And the reaction to the rebellion is rejection from God's presence. So we, we've seen some repeats in this story. We've seen where in 4.9 and 3.9. We see what have you done in 4.10 and 3.13. We've seen drove out in 4.14 and 3.24. And we see the presence of God in 4.16 and 3.8. So we see that, that we're, we're four chapters in, um, and the same motif has repeated itself. Uh, do you, would you be surprised if I told you that this motif shows up more times? A lot more times. And there's a ton of significance. Um, turn with me real quick to, to Abraham and Sarah. Um, God promised something to Abraham in Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16. God promised something to Abraham, and Abraham was not satisfied with the speed with which the promise was being fulfilled. Uh, and so Sarah had this idea. What was Sarah's idea? Hey, here's Hagar. Go ahead and use Hagar. And so we'll read this story, and i got a ton of others, but I don't think time will allow us to, to dig into it anymore. Read this story and think back to some things that you've seen in Cain and Abel and Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, who had borne him no children, she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abraham, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant it may be that I shall, uh, this, this term is um, obtain children by her, um, but that phrase is be built up by her. I go into my servant, it, shall, it may be that I shall be built up by her. And Abraham, or an Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abraham, "May the wrong done to me on may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. 
May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her presence. So we see here that the motif. Uh, when, let me try to explain this. When Eve saw the fruit, when the woman saw the fruit, she looked upon it with desire in her eyes. She determined that it was good for herself, and she took it. And as a result, when she took it, there, there were consequences with that, including being driven out of the garden. And here we see with Sarai and Hagar that Sarai determined something was good in her eyes. Hagar, in this instance, is the fruit, the equivalent of the fruit. Sarai took of it, and as a result, when Sarai took of it, uh, there were consequences. Do you see the connection there? It's not perfectly one-to-one, but there are connections. A promise was made. They listened to the voice of the woman. He took Hagar, saw, see, fled from presence. And then in 1610, um, it talks on, I finished before I, Um, In 1610, the angel of the Lord said to Hagar, I will surely multiply your offspring. Does that sound familiar? After the fall, when I said, I shall surely multiply your pain and childbirth, here the angel comes in and tells Hagar, I will surely multiply your offspring. So we see a lot of these repeat motifs throughout Scripture. We're also going to look at Aaron and the calf. Um, We see that uh, when Moses was up on Mount Sinai, um, and come down there, there's a concept of shame there. Uh, Abram, uh, Aaron, excuse me, took of the people's um, uh, gold. Uh, they saw that it was good. Abram, uh, Aaron, excuse me, listened to the people. Um, so you're going to see all these motifs. Aaron and the people spoke up and determined what was good for themselves. Um, Achan, uh, when, when Joshua led the uh, Israelites to take over Canaan land, um, they were told to don't take any treasure. Uh, Achan saw that something was good, took treasure, um, and he, he was then, um, he, he took what he was, what was desirable to him, excuse me. Uh, when you look at Saul, uh, how Saul was selected as king, we see these same motifs show up, uh, that the, the people of Israel saw Saul, that they took Saul, um, that they, they determined what was good in their own eyes. Uh, David and Bathsheba, all these, these, these stories just repeat the same motif. When man, and the summary to all these stories is that when man rises up and determines what is good for himself, it results in rejection from God's presence. Does that make sense, or did I just confuse everyone with a wild tangent chasing some rabbits? Back to Cain and Abel. Tom mentioned Cain was concerned about people killing him. I shall be, in verse uh, chapter 4, verse 14, I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. What does God do based off that concern? Verse 15. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So we still see here that that God cares for Cain. How beautiful is that? Cain rose up, Cain killed his brother Abel, and God still cares for him. That Cain is still able to come and plead to God that, hey, someone could rise up and kill me. What does God do? He protects him. He puts this mark upon him. What is the mark of Cain? Have you heard that term before? 
Um, there are some religious groups that, that teach that the mark of Cain was dark skin. Um, we have nothing in Scripture that would signify the, the mark of Cain is dark skin. That, that, that is not accurate, um, and I would say that that's heretical. We don't know what the mark of Cain is, but some people teach that the mark of Cain was a cursing. What do we see here? The mark of Cain was actually protection. Instead of it, it identifying someone to kill or someone who messed up, it said that this is, is still someone that I'm going to protect, someone I'm going to care for. And so then the question that I'm asking, or that, that, that presents itself, who was Cain concerned was going to kill them? Other people. Other people. And that's I mentioned it a couple weeks, and I opened up a little bit of a can of worms. Um, was Adam and Eve the first children um, of God or, or the, 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 the preeminent children of God? And I don't have an answer to that question. Um, but we see that, that Cain's concern is these other people who are going to kill him. So who were the other people? Uh, if, if Cain, uh, excuse me, if Adam and Eve were the first children, the other people who were to kill Cain would be who? His siblings. Or Abel's children. But we don't have record of Abel's children. But there, it very well could be Abel's children. We just don't have a record of it. Do you, do you see the, the, the vagueness with the stories and how we try to connect some dots? We're also going to see later that, that Cain goes out and he develops a city. He builds a city. Um, who is in that city? Is it just him and his, his children or are there other people? The text is vague. The text doesn't answer that question. However, we do see that the text indicates that even though Cain messed up, even though Cain was rejected from God's presence, God took care of him. So what happens next? Verse 17, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And so this is that, that same kind of question, that who was Cain's wife? What, what, what do we think is who is Cain's wife? A child of Adam and Eve. And, and, and I, I want to be clear, I, I don't really have a set opinion on who Cain's wife is, uh, and that may be wrong of me to be standing up here teaching without a set opinion. Um, Cain's wife very well could be his sister, another child of Adam and Eve. It could, it could also be uh, another person who was around, just based off how we see the text describe who Adam and Eve are. And I know that, that, that there are disagreements that definitely Adam and Eve were the first people, and, and that is fine. Uh, I think that the text does not dispute if Adam and Eve were the first people. Uh, I think we could also see that Adam and Eve were the chosen people, and the text doesn't dispute Marty. Um, and, and, it's, it's, and Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 discusses Adam being the first man, um, and he discusses Christ being the second man. But when in 1 Corinthians 15, um, Paul's discussing the bodies, uh, a mortal body. The first man being mortal uh, took a body of the earth, uh, a mort mortality. The second man, was, was Jesus the, the literal second man? Because Paul says that Adam is the first man. So if we say that Paul is the literal first man based off 1 Corinthians 15, we have to say that Christ was the literal second man based off 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, well, he, he talks about that Christ is the, the spiritual man. Uh, and this is where, what is Paul's purpose in writing 1 Corinthians 15? What is his, his goal, his objective in, in communicating 1 Corinthians 15? What is he talking about? He's talking about resurrection. And he's trying to describe the way that, that we will be in the resurrection. 
And he's saying that it's going to be different than the body of the first man, the man, the mortal man, the man of dust. It's going to be, <clears throat> excuse me, a body of the second man, an immortal body, a body of Christ, a spiritual body. Is he talking about the origins of mankind in 1 Corinthians 15? No. And we're, we're, we're glimpsing, we're trying to grasp different straws to, to, to put the picture together in our mind. And, and that picture is unclear. And, and again, I, I don't know if the text, if we have enough information to determine if Adam and Eve were the very first or just the chosen. Because there's other issues. If God is an unchanging, consistent God, how do we reconcile Cain marrying his sister with Leviticus 18 in the laws of incest? And that's what, there, there are a lot of problems, and I know I'm throwing out some different issues. And what I, I beg of you is do what Marty's done. Do what the, uh, the Wallens have done. Those are the ones that have come up and talked to me. Dig into this stuff. Ask these questions, because these are the questions that, that should be presenting, wait, 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 this doesn't make sense to me. I want to dig in. I want to understand this more. These are the questions that should be driving us to study. And the beautiful thing is, is that our theological conclusions do not change based off of, of, of the answer to these questions. Does that make sense, or have I just lost everyone and get your pitchforks and, and torches out? And so Marty discusses the aspect of genes and genetics, uh, and there have been major scientific studies that go back, uh, and, and based off a, a young Earth position, um, there is enough genetic diversity uh, to go back to two people. Um, there's an, enough genetic diversity for that. Um, and, and then what we also need to remember is that there's going to be something happen in chapter 8 um, that the two people uh, won't be Adam and Eve, the two people will be Noah and his wife. Um, but there is enough genetic diversity uh, to come from, from two people. And so the science of genetics, from my understanding, align with Adam and Eve being the first, and the, the, the first two. Um, but they don't necessarily have to. And, and so I, I, I bring this subject up, and I know that it's something that, that is bringing some anxiety to us. I think that we need to be aware of alternatives, or maybe not alternatives, but differing viewpoints on things. And the way that we react when there's some new information or different information presented uh, could drive people away. And I'm going to get up my soapbox, and I'm going to preface this on my soapbox. We're, we're so concerned about our children going to college and being exposed to an alternative line of thinking. And we think that our children are falling away from the church because they're exposed to an alternative way of thinking in college. What does that indicate? Curtis Pittman opinion, I think it indicates that we have not raised ourselves or our children up to able to decipher and distinguish and make decisions for themselves. God's word is truth, 100% truth. We see in the New Testament in multiple times that we are told to test the spirits. We should be able to pull this thing apart, look at it underneath a magnifying glass, and know that this is God's truth. It will hold up to any level of scrutiny, any level of scrutiny. Does that make sense? So we need to understand and fully break down the differing viewpoints, viewpoints that, that may be different than what we have looked at. And again, I tell you, I'm, I'm agnostic when it comes to if Adam and Eve were the first, uh, first two or the, the most important. 
Others might have a, a, a different line of study, and please share it with me. Share it with each other um, to, to see that actually, yeah, you know what? This is leaning me towards that they were definitely the first. Or this is, yeah, okay, maybe we're, we're, we're looking at something different. Does that make sense? The, Marty's right. There is no evidence that they were not. And, and there, there similarly is, uh, one could look and say that there's no evidence that they were either. That the text doesn't really describe in, in detail. And that's what, in order to, to come to these conclusions, there's been people way smarter than me who are, who are understanding the language and everything associated behind it. All right. So let, let's look at that real quick. And, and, and Andrew asked a question, would there be reason to not mention it has a bunch of daughters, that they had a bunch of daughters? Um, throughout chapter 5, we're going to see the genealogical records where it says that they had many other sons and daughters. We, we see in chapter uh, 5 that Adam and Eve, in chapter 5, verse uh, 4, the days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. This, I think, Adam lived 930 years. How many children did Adam have? <laughs> he probably had a bunch. How old were Cain and Abel when, um, when, how old was Abel when he was killed? We don't know. We do know that when was Seth born? Seth was born after Cain and Abel. So why do we not have an account of other sons and daughters? Were there other sons and daughters or between Abel and Seth? They very well could be. They very well could be. And like Marty brought up, um, that would indicate how Cain got a wife. But the text doesn't say. All the text does is highlight key individuals within the genealogy. The key individuals that we have seen highlighted so far with names are Adam, our Eve, our Cain, and Abel. And at the end of chapter 4, we see Seth. Or through chapter 4, we're going to see Cain's lineage. But those are the only people that we've seen with names. When someone is given a name, it shows significance. It shows that they have, have, have a purpose, that there's a reason for them to be in the story. And those are the only individuals that we've seen so far. And so based off of, uh, we'll jump to the end of chapter 4, verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And so we, 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 we have big gaps in the story. Big gaps in the story. And whenever we have a big gap, what is our, our inclination to do? What do we want to do? We want to fill that gap in. Uh, and that's what I, if nothing else from this morning, I want two things. Two things from this morning. When man determines what is good for himself, what happens? Sin. When we are presented with potentially alternative views, what should our reaction be? Dig in and study about it. Because, and, and I have no issues if in four weeks I come back and say, you know what, guys, all that stuff I was talking about, I was wrong. I have no issues talking about that because we have, have studied and dug into it. Other thoughts or comments before uh, we're, we're out of time, before we end our day. And, and that's what, what does the story focus on? Does the story focus on the human origins? No. What does the story focus on? When man rises up and determines what is good for himself, he sins and he is cast out of God's presence. Even though man is cast out of God's presence, what does God do for man? 
He continues to have the relationship with him, continues to care for him. And so we have, have turned 30 minutes, and some of it I brought on myself, uh, into a conversation about human origins that the text doesn't describe. As a result, we, we miss the point of the text. The point of the text is that God has one made this beautiful creation for man, that God cares for man even when man doesn't care for God. Is that fair? When man doesn't care for God's commands. Uh, we'll end with a, a word of prayer, um, and then uh, we'll uh, have 15 minutes before our time of worship this morning. If you bow with me. Father, we're thankful for this morning. We're thankful for your word. Uh, we pray, Father, that we can... Uh, dig into it and to, to gather what you would have us uh, be from it. We pray, Father, that we can with humility uh, look to you, look to your word, Father, and, and, and lean on you to determine what is right, lean on you to determine what is good, Father, and, and to be aware of our uh, introduction, Father, and, and our opinions on that. We ask your blessings um, to us. We ask your blessings upon our study. We ask that you be with us during the, the next worship period. This prayer we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to West Visalia Audio. We hope these messages have helped you grow and inspired you to take action. Be sure to check in each week for more on-the-go content or visit our YouTube channel to watch the live video. Thanks for participating and God bless.